good to have your company at the Gallery of Curiosities. I am, as always, your host, Osgood. I just finished up the spring cleaning yesterday, and I am left with this particular artifact, which I cannot find a place for. It simply defies classification. I cannot even say what it might be, much less what it could be used for. Do you think, perhaps, someone left it here? Maybe that dreadful professor down the street, always taking things apart and then putting them back together in some peculiar manner, then trying to get me to put it on exhibit. I like to find my own exhibits. Speaking of confounding objects, let's talk about this evening's story, shall we? If you kept your art history textbook from college, you may want to fetch it to follow along this evening. For those of you who did not opt for the Easy A freshman elective, we have made this episode available as a slideshow on YouTube. But just for this once... Our author this evening is Mr. Constantine Paradias a writer by choice and a member of the SFWA by compulsion. At the moment, he has published over 150 stories in a bunch of languages and has written, edited, and posed for video games, screenplays, and anthologies. People tell him that he has a writing problem, but he can, like, quit whenever he wants, man. His latest book, Violence Dave Heartless, is published by Bizarro Pulp Press. It will be read for us by Mr. Isaiah Plovnik. And the Faces Screamed in the Gallery by Constantine Paradias Read by Isaiah Plovnik Paris, the Louvre. Jacques Armand was the first casualty of the art apocalypse. He was shot dead by the eldest Spencer child from Kaufman's painting, his arrow knocked on the bowstring by his two giggling younger sisters. His last coherent thought was of his wife at home, hunched over the rickety old typewriter he had gotten her as a novelty jag, churning out page after page of a manuscript he knew she would never let anyone read. The last sound he heard as his lifeblood spilled across the immaculate marble floors was the gentle, tearing noise that the Belle Epoque multitudes made as they stepped out of their frames— the Renoirs, the Casaltes, the Monets, clicking their teeth and letting out ululating war cries. Victor Simonette was next. 
torn to pieces by the baying crowds of the Polici Verso. The triumphant gladiator waited until they were done before he took Victor's bruised and bloodied head as a trophy to wear upon his belt. In the surveillance room, the security officers were halfway through dialing the police when their telephones and their surveillance equipment were reduced into a half-melted mess of plastic and silicon as the Dali gang burst through the reinforced steel door. In the classical wing, the Last Supper skittered out of its painting like a millipede, waving and bobbing the sum of its parts as it began patrolling the corridors. The Falvist paintings developed feral grins, previously unseen pastel dog teeth flecked with cream-colored spittle. In the Futurist wing, cities burst out of their frames and filled the corridors like cancerous growths of worlds to come. The Picassos abandoned themselves to orgiastic practices, driven mad with lust by the sensual whispering of the visiting ukiyo-e woodcuts. The Vortisist paintings went to war, all rumbling gears and clanking angles against the pointillist masses. Their forms ran together into maelstroms of madly churning color as they clashed. From their perches, the symbolists silently placed judgment on their brethren like uncaring gods. It was the prelude to the end of the world, danced to the beat of the industrial hearts of Van Gogh's factories, manned by stone-faced Soviet propaganda poster workers that built the weapons which would wage war on mankind. And at the heart of it all, perched behind reinforced glass in the suprematist wing, where the solemn shapes were content to simply stand there as silent bastions of repressed creativity, there was a hairline fracture on the surface of the black circle, too fine to see with the human eye. It made the Louvre's foundations shake as it grew with barely contained rage. The police came, of course, drawn by the cacophony, but when the officers approached the doors, they were trampled under the marble-hewn hooves of the horses of the Dioscuri. The rampaging beasts smashed skulls and police cars alike, driven into a frenzy by their keepers. The army followed shortly after, charging the gates of the Louvre, but the Dada paintings came down on their APCs, reducing them to nonsense collages with the density of canary bones. When the army attempted to blast their way in, the explosive charges were reduced to nonsense geometric shapes by cubist gorillas. They brought in psychics and experts. They brought in CERN scientists who had traveled into alien, unknowable universes. They brought in art professors and critics, but none of them could break through the madcap defenses of the Louvre. And so the French president, with his head hung low, called the superhumans with his special red phone, and in their headquarters in the North Pole the superhumans weighed the risks and their options, found this crisis too strange for their tastes, and so they picked up their clockwork ivory phone with its zodiac dial and called the Astrolab. Samothraki The Village of Therma the people of Therma hated the ivory phone's non-ring. 
It had a haunting tone to it, a halfway dirge-like sound. To expecting women, its ring sound like the heartbeat of their future children. To widowers, it was very much like the gentle sound of their beloved departed's breathing. It sounded like longing and loss and childhood songs stuck in your head, which is why Panos had unhooked the damn thing and dumped it in the cellar. Not that that made any difference. Half awake, he rose from his bed, opened the trap door, and fumbled in the dark, putting the receiver to his ear. We need the Astrolab, the voice said, calm and commanding. It was the voice of the Messiah, champion of the known universe and appointed defender of Earth-9 Gamma. Can't it wait, Panos said, rubbing his eyes. The Louvre is currently in uproar. The works of art in it have already killed a dozen people. If you don't hurry, it's going to be a massacre. Why can't you get the sorcerer to do it? He's an art critic, isn't he? The French president is waiting for you in Paris. We informed him that you will be there in three hours. Get to it! Yes, sir, Panos muttered just as the line cut off, returning to his room to retrieve his drawing supplies. Other heroes had secret words and transmogrification chambers, alien suits that would make them truly superhuman. The stargazer had a special isolation chamber built by Tibetan monks in the Himalayas. Nevermore has his magical Poe homunculus. All Panos had was a half-dozen three-h pencils and a bit of paper and an old poem by Kravafi that haunted the recesses of his brain. I sit in a mood of reverie. I brought to art desires and sensations, he muttered, as his hand moved despite himself, drawing the hard features of the astrolabe's jaw. Things half-glimpsed, faces or lines, certain indistinct memories, a mane of white hair, eyes like moonstones, the body of Apollo, made featureless by a form-fitting white suit, no cape. Of fulfilled love affairs, let me submit to art. Art knows how to shape forms of beauty. Strong hands, the hands of a father, a stave two meters long, an astrolab containing every possible formation of every star in the heavens balanced at the end of it. A voice that was deep and commanding, the kind he imagined angels spoke with. The pencil lengthened in his hands, the lead inside it transmuting into gold, its cedar body changing back into sturdy oak, its tip blossomed into the chosen instrument of sailors, the arcane fixation of poets. Receding into the half-formed places of the mind, Panos drew breath with lungs that weren't his own, his body brimming with muscles and his head filled with stars. Almost imperceptibly completing life, blending impressions, blending day with day, the astrolab said, and flew out of his bedroom window, outrunning sound by several degrees, but still no louder than a whisper, leaving Samothraki to sleep undisturbed. Paris, outside the Louvre. 
We wouldn't have called you here if this wasn't of the utmost importance, you understand. The French president said as he shook the astrolabe's hand. We have not managed to break into the Louvre, and so far the artworks have made no attempt to communicate. We have, however, received some alarming readings from within. Rising levels of radiation, for example? Somewhere around the 10 millirem mark? The astrolabe suggested. Yes, exactly. Our experts believe that there have been some fluctuation, but... They cannot pinpoint the source of the radiation. We believe there might be some nuclear factor involved. Perhaps this is a terrorist attack. It's not a terrorist attack, sir. It's a countdown. The radiation will keep increasing in intensity before it spills out across Paris. It is the only way to detect a tear in reality. I should know. You believe that something is attempting to invade our reality through the Louvre? No. The background thought power of the museum's visitors alone could allow it to break through with as little fuss as possible. If it were using any of the classical works as a conduit, it would have already made world fall. This is something completely out of the ordinary, but I won't know until I've had a look at it myself. We cannot break into the Louvre. We just attempted to bring in some parachutists through the roof, but Ernst Ang de Foyer shot the helicopters down before they could even come close. Then I will need a map of the Louvre, and a quiet place. Leave the rest to me. The items were procured immediately, and the astrolabe shut himself in the kitchen of a small café that was cordoned off according to his instructions. In the silence of the café, the Astrolab consulted the maps, filled with the updated notes of the security teams. They showed the Louvre as it had become, an nonsensical, impossible fortress. It had impassable walls and dead-locked doors, windows that had turned into endlessly looping tunnels that trapped demo-men in the twisting dark. Neither drills nor bombs or tank fire would be able to pierce through the impregnable defenses of the museum. Art had taken over the Louvre. And art, the Astrolab knew, always tended to make up its own rules as it went along. In order to beat art into submission, he'd have to improvise. So he took a piece of chalk from the soup of the day blackboard and drew a door frame on the floor. With the guidebook as his reference, he copied the design of one of the maintenance room doors, which had been included in the floor plans by accident. The door stuck out in the middle of a corridor, connecting to the classical and the symbolist wings, which seemed to be content to remain neutral for the time being. Drawing a doorknob and hinges on the design, the astrolabe placed the map against the center of the chalk door and tapped the open page with his stave, causing it to collapse inward. After checking the corridor to make sure it was deserted, the astrolab jumped through the opening, the Louvre, and into the cacophony inside the museum, where abstract industry created engines of destruction that roared like angry bulls, their fumes smelling strongly of linseed oil and freshly hewn marble. Below him, the Astrolab could feel great furnaces filled to the brim with bubbling metal, safely contained inside the industrialist dystopias of the social realist paintings. Placing his stave upright on the corridor tiles, 
He examined the museum through his instrument, searching for the source of the reality warp. There was power brewing here, radiating outward from a maelstrom of pure fury, a thing that was wholly elemental and utterly primal. The tendrils of power snaked below, into some obscured wing, a place that appeared to him as a sphere of solid blackness, its surface covered in a lattice of cracks. With his stave in hand, the astrolabe willed himself through the solid mass of the floor and descended into the depths of the Louvre. He glided across solid matter, swam across the impossible defenses, when Magritte's Gonconda blocked his way with a wall of faceless sentries, he slipped into the now-abandoned garden of earthly delights, camouflaging himself amid the dazzling whiteness of heaven before slipping out of hell, vaulting across its frame to latch onto the pastel outcroppings of Van Gogh's starry night. Slipping across the streets of Impressionist Arles, he pushed past the shadowy figures that haunted the curving bridge in Munch's scream, slid down across its skewed perspective, and launched himself into the warped distances, bumping against the pillow-soft folds of the embracing lovers in Klimt's kiss. Spinning like a runaway comet, the astrolabe arched over mad Saturn's wizened head, Goya's senile titan paused halfway through feasting on one of Fastio's screaming cherubs, only to see the astrolabe disappearing in the distance, before crashing into Blake's roguish flea. The reptilian creature clawed and bit at the astrolabe, its talons ripping into his suit, its forked tongue stabbing at the bits of exposed flesh. They slammed into the incubus haunting Fusili's nightmare, and were finally separated, leaving the astrolabe enough time to correct his course and gently ease himself closer to the source of the disturbance. He could feel it before it even loomed into view. The featureless, black thing that hovered in the center of the supremacist's gallery, too bloated for its frame to contain its volume any more. It sucked in light, existing only as a blind spot in his eyes as big as the world, ferocious and pregnant with possibility. Paintings and statues and snarling Art Deco lions orbited its terrible, turning mass, spinning helplessly in its orbit. The astrolabe watched the thing grow, twisting space as it went, and turned to leave. Everything about this screamed extinction event. He'd have to get the Messiah on this, gather the world's greatest sorcerers, or even get the Orgrinus to flood the entire place with blue radiation before this thing came to term. He was halfway through shifting into the matter in the twisting walls, when Geracult's anatomical pieces whipped out of their trapped canvas and grasped him in mid-air. He kicked and punched at the wriggling limbs, screamed in terror as he watched their skin explode with rows on rows of freshly formed eyes. The orbiting arch screeched at the sight of the intruder, of the creature of flesh and blood that had invaded their sanctum. Without turning, the black circle faced the tiny creature that thought itself superhuman, rumbled with laughter at the sight of its pitiful stave. Not real, 
not meat, tittered little Antonia Gonzalez, clicking rows on rows of shark-like teeth. Tear it up, howled Bonheur's bloodied stallions, their manes dripping with gore. Eat its eyes! Eat its brains! The Mona Lisa howled, her face smeared with war paint. What are you, not man? The black circle thundered in the Astrolab's brain. I'm not real, and neither are you. Isn't that right? The Astrolab said through gritted teeth. Let me drown it in my glistening guts. Kahlo's hopeless self-portrait wheezed. Not man, not thought, not flesh, not enemy, the Black Circle decreed. But the anatomical pieces maintained its grip on the astrolab. You are bearing something that's real, aren't you? Something that can't exist inside the Louvre, not like you do. But the effort is killing you. So you're all feeding on the only available abundant source of power, fear, and fascination. Except it's not enough. Not anymore, the Astrolab continued. Because when that living thing, that new thing, comes out, it will want an entire world to grow and know and feed from. It will need a safe place to live in, an empty, trampled space. Time of birthing. Approaches, my progeny will not be denied its birthright. If you go to war with the people outside, they won't stand for it. I'm not the only superhuman. There are others greater than I. If I fall, they'll come and crush your child before it's even left its cradle. The gods and the titans fight for me. We will annihilate them. Can your gods blow out suns? Can your titans make machines that can tear apart the heavens or move entire continents with a click of their fingers? They can do all these things, these others. Your child won't make it out of Paris. The astrolab choked as a severed leg wound itself around his neck. Let me help you. We are the fearing. We are the repressed. They made you like this because they were scared. The people who created you, you were all their hopes and dreams that were trampled by jackbooted thugs. But the world is no longer like this. The people out there, they aren't your enemies anymore. If they don't understand you, they won't try to crush you. They are no longer afraid of you all, the Astrolab said, wrenching away from the starry night's grip, diving out of the picture frame to touch the crumbling sphere. Please, stop this. There has been too much bloodshed already. We will... Have our revenge. The black circle boomed, 
even as its shell crumbled and fell apart, even as the unconscious thought streams of its creators began to leak out in an unbroken collage of ideas. The paintings and the sculptures in its orbit screamed and cackled, their war cry spreading outward through the Louvre, radiating through France across the world like a tidal wave made up of notions and concepts unchained, unfettered. Above ground, a war machine made from jet and wood burst through the walls of the Louvre. Impossible aircraft exploded outward from the glass pyramid. Art was going to war across the world, things of the mind and the heart rising up to kill their makers. And in their secret bases, the superhumans were assaulted by Roman frescoes. In China, painted mountains rolled across the streets of Beijing. In Russia, the statues of the fallen heroes picked up their hammers and sickles and their rifles to strike at the panicking crowds. In Africa, the saints came down from their places in the icons, their forms wafer-thin and sharp as razors. In India, Shiva statues began to dance, signaling doomsday. I can't let you do this. I'm sorry, the astrolabe said, reaching his hand into the kaleidoscope of ideas. He found purchase inside the crumbling black circle. Spinning his stave, he aimed at the weakening walls of reality and unleashed a burst of concentrated power. The barrier between universes quivered, cracked, and finally tore, opening a wound in reality, barely a meter wide. The astrolabe turned his stave in the air, gathering the godlike rage around him, aiming it into the wound, tearing it open. The multiverse's gleaming guts beckoned. I will take you someplace where you can do no more harm. Wrenching the black circle away from reality, the astrolabe let its weight drag him down across the multitude of worlds, watching as it broke apart into a million pieces, infesting every possible reality. In Earth Five Epsilon, it sowed the seed of ambiguity. In Earth Six Delta, a woman shot up from her bed in the middle of the night to compose poetry. In Eight Beta, a young boy looked up at the stars and discovered hidden meanings. It happened across every facet of existence. An explosion of creativity that reached out across every possible world, washing over every living thing. By the time the astrolabe had reached the wastelands of the Omega Parallels, the black circle had been little more than fragments too small for the naked eye to see. Riding back through the fault in reality, the astrolabe ascended back into his universe. Paris The war machines fell apart barely two minutes later. Whatever you did there, you saved us all, the French president said tiptoeing across the rebel-strewn courtyard of the Louvre. It was the least I could do. What was it in there that nearly killed us all? It was an invasion attempt by a parallel universe, perhaps one of the Epsilons. Thankfully, I shut down the rift they were using to make world fall. Those that made it through died shortly after. Apparently, a latent element in our atmosphere caused their bodies to combust. You should find some of their remains intact, hopefully, the astrolabe lied. I understand. You realize, of course, that you just saved the Earth. 
I guess the Sentinel will waste no time inducting you into their team, the French president smiled, clapping the astrolabe on the arm. I certainly hope not, Mr. President. I don't think they could keep up with me. Willing himself away from gravity's grip, the astrolabe ascended into the sky, flying back to Samothraki. Even now he could feel them in the air, circulating through the network of human minds, brand new ideas that had lingered in this universe, radiating outwards from Earth to every fertile mind in existence. They would grow freely now, allowed to circulate and perhaps even to outshine their predecessors in due time. When the astrolabe retreated back into the place of ideas, he would find a whole new world waiting for him. You know, I rather like that one. I liked it so much that I'm thinking, perhaps it is time for us to change our format. This steampunk and vintage horror stick is getting rather... Musty, don't you think? We need something modern, something more avant-garde. A little absurdity to shake off the dust. They'll love it in Oregon. And Andrew won't have to hide those exotic mushrooms that he's been growing down in the basement. Mm, those editors... Always up to their little pranks when they run out of work to do. I should go check in on them and put them in their place. That means you will have to run along. Do visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Pictures at an exhibition, I just go for the booze. Artist statements make me snooze. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. If you like the show, write us a review. If you don't like the show, why are you still here? Time is precious. Our theme song is Ashes Ashes by Deus Ex Vepora Machina. This episode was produced in April of 2018. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com.